Hello, and welcome to episode two of Divergent by Design, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring the ways that you can use universal design for learning in your classroom. My name is Lynn Kleinmeyer, and I am joined today by one of my favorite people, Jonathan Wiley. Hello, Lynn. How are you? <laughs> I'm excellent. After that intro the first time, you know, I had to up my intro game and mention that you are one of my favorite people. I feel like you're just having a, a, a slight jab at me for not putting that in in the first episode, but, you know, I can take it. That works. <laughs> but it, it's truly genuine. You know, you mm-hmm. are one of my favorite people, especially one of my favorite people to talk about universal design for learning with. That is good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my. Well, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back for another episode. Yes, a whopping episode two. So Mm -hmm. for this episode, we're going to be taking a deeper dive in exploring the guidelines themselves that we mentioned in our first episode, giving you a little bit of context and helping to support your navigation and beginning integration. Yeah, I think in the last episode, it was kind of a big picture introduction. Yeah, definitely overview. Yeah, a big overview. I think this one we're going to dive a little deeper into UDL, if that's not too much alliteration, I guess. There's no such thing, Jonathan Wiley. There's no such thing as we mentioned on the last episode, for sure. So let's uh, let's dive in and demystify some UDL. Yes, this is the best. All right. So we did want to maybe start off the podcast just talking a little bit about um, some of the myths that we have heard uh, in our own journey for understanding UDL and just kind of clearing the the air with some of those misconceptions that we've maybe heard. So do you want to start or do you want me to? Uh, sure, I can start. Uh, the first one that we will probably broach here is that UDL is not just a special education thing. And I think it lends itself very well to special education because there are students there that need some very specific supports that UDL can help with, but it is essentially designed for everybody. It's that you and UDL is the universal part. The approach that Lynn and I are taking to this is much more from a general education lens because that is that is our background, and we definitely see some very um, strong connections with the classroom and, and how it can be used to help all students. I think another piece that I just want to kind of address um, is that UDL is not something you do. I'm going to do air quotes like you guys can see me here. Mm. So it's not something to be done. It's it's not a checklist of things, action items. It instead is this mindset. And like you were just saying, Jonathan, the idea that... Um, And I'm not sure where this idea that it got rooted in special education really kind of came from. I don't know if it's Cass's work um, kind of at the initial piece of accessibility. Um, But it's this idea that it's that mindset shift of it being good for all students. It's about uh, recognizing that there might be some barriers um, that are surfacing for students and proactively attempting to remove them. as opposed to retroactively removing those barriers. So it's it's really about designing with empathy and intentionality from the get-go rather than sometimes what we do in education um, kind of in hindsight being 2020. Yeah, and I think I, I'd spin off that a little bit in terms of 
you might look at the students you have and then you might look at the UDL guidelines and think, well, the thing that my students really need some additional support with is engagement. And so you're just focusing on that one part of those UDL guidelines. Or maybe you are, you know, working with a specific group of students that, you know, it's not even like your whole class needs this. It's maybe these three or four students need help with their executive functioning. And then, you know, you can pull out that little part of the UDL guideline. So it's not a checklist more as it is maybe perhaps a reference guide, Mm -hmm. a collection of strategies and ideas that are research-based that you can use to work with your students. Yeah, some think abouts. And I, I love what you just said about it starts with knowing your students and being intentional about the things that you maybe are exploring or implementing being directly related to the needs of those students. And so really starting with them as, as you design your learning experiences all the way through um, to how you're asking your students to demonstrate their, their learning because of the experience. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe the next thing would be to look at what the purpose of UDL was when it was first created and uh, think about how that can help us think about, you know, where it is now in terms of context for improving what we're doing in the classroom. You want to talk about that, Lynn? Yeah. So as we mentioned in our last episode, the Universal Design for Learning Guidelines and Framework have really have kind of a lengthy history. It all started with universal design in architecture and that idea of really um, designing spaces and um, devices that were really going to help support a wide range of people. And so slowly but surely, there was a grasping on of that concept uh, by CAST and thinking about what does that mean in the educational context. And so the framework really began to develop as this idea of designing environments that are accessible and challenging for all students. And so one of the things that I really, really um, appreciate about the UDL guidelines and something that really, really resonated for me, when you look at the goal of UDL, CAST has a wonderful site that we will link in for you to check out. But one of the things it talks about is that UDL aims to change the design of the environment rather than to change the learner. And so it kind of goes back to that whole concept and that whole idea of removing barriers for as many of your students as possible and really recognizing that sometimes the problems are with the practice, never with the person. Yeah, and I would say, like you mentioned, universal design, that really has has very close parallels to that. So Maybe an example in the universal design world would be like uh, a wheelchair ramp. When we, people first invented those, they were um, there to give access to people in wheelchairs that wouldn't be able to navigate stairs into a building. But it's not just people in wheelchairs that are going to use those ramps. You're going to have mothers with strollers. You're going to have the Pepsi guy come in with more supplies for your <laughs> vending machine. You're going to have elderly people and maybe young toddlers that can't navigate stairs. So that one design, that wheelchair ramp that they designed, can be used by all kinds of people. And it was a change for the environment. They didn't ask people with wheelchairs or other disabilities to have to change and meet their stairs. And so that is exactly what UDL is like in the classroom. We're thinking about changing the environment that our kids are in so that as many kids can 
benefit from that as possible. Not just the the individuals that might need specific targeted support, but all of the kids that we're working with in the classroom. Yeah, just hearing you say that reminds me, um, I went to a UDL symposium out in Boston a couple of years ago, and I unfortunately don't remember um, the lady who who mentioned this, but one of the takeaways I had was this amazing quote that said, necessary for some, but beneficial for all or for many. And so I think that idea is kind of resonates both with that universal design, but also universal design for learning. So really trying to help be intentional about what you're crafting. Yeah. And so it's the idea of putting the focus on the pedagogy and the practice so that you can remove the barriers. I think, you know, sometimes in the past, we've all been guilty of saying things like, oh, well, this student has a problem with X. They are not able to do it. And that implies that it's the student's fault, as opposed to flipping that on its head a little bit, which is what UDL encourages you to do. And to think about the task or the the way that you're giving the student the the learning for this particular skill and thinking, you know, how can I change that so that it is easier for, for that student? Because, you know, it takes us back to that teaching to the middle conversation yeah. where we have this idea that, you know, we teach one level of content and, you know, hopefully the majority of the kids in the middle get it and the kids that, you know, are on the lower end are going to find it a little bit more challenging and the kids that are on the upper end might find it a little bit too easy. So, you know, how do we how do we reach all of those kids? And I think uh, UDL is something that, that helps us with that. Right. I just got this image in my brain of like casting this net and trying to get as many um, fish or students as possible. I don't know where this <laughs> metaphor is quite going, but yeah. but that you're missing the the kids on the periphery oftentimes when you're doing that, those who maybe need some additional support or those who need that challenge. And so it makes me think of that um, myth of average that, you know, that you're, if you are just kind of casting the net towards the middle, you're missing the peripheries or those edges. Yeah, there's a great video, The Myth of Average by uh, Todd Rose. It's a TED Talk. We can link to that in the show notes. And one of the things he does in that video is he recalls how the U.S. Air Force was um, going through a process of uh, redesigning their cockpits for their pilots. And they had some problems because, you know, they were designing their chairs and the cockpits that the pilots sat in for what they termed as the average pilot. And they had someone do a study on what that average pilot actually looked like. And he surveyed, I think it was like 4,000 pilots, did all kinds of measurements, height, width, all the different things that, you know, might affect how you would sit in an aircraft cockpit. And the conclusion he came to was that none of the pilots fit the average measurements of those 4,000. There is no average pilot, like there is no average student, I guess. And we're guilty of saying, you know, the average student or your average teacher will right. be able to I do this, that. but I have said that way too many times. Yeah, so just kind of a mind blowing thing, and you know, part of that whole research that they did led to things like adjustable seats, like we have in our cars now. Little things that we probably couldn't live without. If I had to drive my wife's car and she had to drive my car, when without adjustable seats, we would have some serious problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I remember listening to and watching that video and they were talking about how at first um, 
all of the companies were kind of putting up resistance because they thought it was going to be impossible and it was going to be so expensive and it was yeah. going to be so time consuming. But really what they found was really small tweaks made big impacts. Like you were just saying, the idea of the adjustable seats, it's it wasn't a huge undertaking to create that. And that's what I kind of um, hope people take away about the UDL guidelines and frameworks as well as we delve into these a little bit that they're not these huge astronomical overhauls of anything. It's just the small intentional little tweaks that we can make that really have major impact. Yeah. And maybe another thing to just make specific here about those UDL guidelines. And we talked about this briefly in the last episode, but we're going to try and make it explicit this time for you. We didn't want the UDL guidelines to be, you know, one more thing for you. We didn't want it to be just an extra thing to have on your plate and learn about because there are actually some really great connections that are made between the UDL and some national initiatives and frameworks that you're probably already well familiar with. Yes. I, um, for those of you who know me in real life, uh, you know, I live my life by inspirational phrases and, you know, that whole idea of work smarter, not harder. And, you know, just this idea of that connectivity between things is huge for me. I am not a fan of silos. And so, as Jonathan just said, that idea that UDL, um, it's not just us loving it. Uh, there's other initiatives that directly reference it because they believe in the impact. And so, as Jonathan just said, um, the ESSA work the Every Student Succeeds Act actually directly references uh, UDL multiple times uh, throughout the entirety and uh, really references um, some of the Higher Education Opportunity Act work that had been done, um, talking about that idea of being flexible in the ways that information is presented and the way students respond and demonstrate knowledge and skills, um, talking about the reducing of barriers and, and things like that, that Jonathan and I have already referenced. Uh, there is also direct reference to UDL in the National EdTech Plan as well, which they are currently in the process of working to do some updates. But both of those um, national guiding documents and initiatives reference UDL explicitly, make direct reference to the mindset shifts that are embodied within that framework. Yeah, and I think that that's important because, one, it speaks to the reputation of this framework and, and how it is viewed on a national level. And two, you know, if this is something that you are looking to do more of in your district, you can justify it much better to your principals and administrators you work with by saying, hey, this is, this is really part of what we do as a school. So I think this is really important for us and our, and our kids. Exactly. And so just adds that little level of credence to what you're saying. That's the word I was looking for. Yes, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> I couldn't, I almost couldn't say it, but no. you're welcome. Yeah. But all right. So let's talk a little bit about the framework itself. You know, it is pretty robust and it's very intentionally designed. Um, so if you're not familiar with it, Jonathan and I want to kind of give you a little bit of a, a tour, if you will. Um, to kind of guide you through understanding kind of the structure and where to start and how to kind of wrap your mind around all of the amazingness that's wrapped up in this this framework. So when you navigate your way to the UDL guidelines, um, you'll notice that it's very beautifully color-coded, which I absolutely appreciate. But you're going to notice that there's a structure of three separate columns. These columns are the principles that are guiding the UDL framework. 
So we start with that left-hand column of engagement. This is really the why of learning. And then in the middle, um, represented in purple, you have representation, which is really the engaging with the what of learning. And then the final column is action and expression, the how of learning, how we're actually demonstrating this. So you'll also notice that there's these images of the brain. So it's showing a direct connection between that cognitive piece of the framework and also kind of what's happening within your within your your mental processing. So um, because I like to kind of make connections all the time, in my brain, I kind of wrap that engagement to that idea of what you're doing at the beginning of your lesson, how you're inviting your students into the learning experience. Think about the representation is all about what you're doing during learning, how your students are actually interacting with the content. And I think of the action and expression column, that's kind of like the, the afterpiece where kids are showing and demonstrating what you're learning or what they've taken away from the learning. Yeah, and each of those columns are broken down into guidelines. And if we take, for example, the engagement column here, the first guideline there is on recruiting interest. And you can click on that guideline and it will give you more information about what that is really getting at there. It gives you a paragraph at the top here talking about engaging the learners into things that's going to attract them and make them interested in your learning. And underneath that are some checkpoints. And so we've got checkpoint 7.1, which is optimize individual choice and autonomy. And that one you can click into again and get even more information, more strategies, more ideas of what that looks like. So just a little bit about the, the structure of what that is. I don't know how clear that is on an audio <laughs> podcast. You might be wanting to have a look at your cheat sheet here as we're talking. But uh, that's that's the general structure of how these uh, guidelines are put together. Yeah. And as Jonathan was saying, so you have your columns, which are your principles, and your principles are broken into those guidelines with the checkpoints. But one of the other things I want to point out, um, as you're looking at this, uh, hopefully at this point in time, you've navigated to the UDL guidelines and you have them open next to you as you're listening to this podcast. Um, but one of the really cool things about how they've structured the framework itself is that going down these rows, you'll notice on the left-hand side, the first row all the way across the columns is access. This is really about um, ideas, guidelines that are about helping students kind of have an entry point. They're very teacher-based kind of ideas of, of what teachers can do. You'll notice that the next row directly below is build. This is a row of guidelines that really suggest ways to develop effort and persistence, and it's a gradual release of that responsibility to your students. And then finally, the, the bottom row is internalized, which is about um, guidelines that are empowering your learners to really take on that learning experience themselves. So as you progress your way um, you know, from left to right with those columns. Like I said, it's in my mind, I kind of think beginning, during, after the lesson. But then also as you progress your, your way down the rows, it's a gradual release of responsibility so that you're working your way towards that ultimate goal. Because the final piece that a lot of times people don't quite scroll down far enough to see, across the bottom, they have goals 
for each of these different principles, the engagement, the representation, action, and expression, of where they're trying to get students to, to be. And I love the phrasing that they use, expert learners. Absolutely love that because it's that idea of you're not an expert. You haven't like achieved the end-all, be-all, but you're an expert learner. So you're really empowering yourself. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's such a, a great term. I think we all want our students to be expert learners um, who are purposeful and motivated, resourceful and knowledgeable and strategic and goal-directed. It's, it's what we're trying to prepare kids for after they leave the K-12 school system. You know, whether they go to college or whether they go into the workplace, they still need to be, we still need to be learners. We, we haven't learned at all in school. There's more to learn. Every day is a school day, as they say. So, you know, this framework really helps, you know, prepare our students in some of the best possible ways. Exactly. And just once again, to reiterate um, how much I appreciate the intentionality that went into creating this, this framework. Um, and I love that it's meant to be interactive. Yeah. So you can click on and build your own understanding as an expert learner for each of these different components that it clearly defines it for you. And then with those checkpoints, you can drill down um, to give yourself better clarity, deeper context, but also actionable items that you could maybe explore or implement. So I love that they um, take it from the very broad down to the really granular, here's the so what, now what kind of moment. Yeah, and if you're digging into some of those checkpoints and you're wondering, why are they suggesting we do this? They also have a list of research there right along on the side where you can look and see why, you know, this is considered to be, you know, best practice. Because the UDL framework is research-based. And as educators, we want to do things that are making the biggest difference. And we get that from research-based practices. Exactly. So... As we continue our Divergent by Design adventure, in our upcoming episodes, what we're going to be doing is discussing uh, some sort of general topic, very familiar to those of us as educators, um, but making some explicit connections between those overarching topics and then the principles, the guidelines, and the checkpoints of the UDL framework. And so we're going to be kind of giving further ideas um, in addition to those that you find on the framework itself. Yeah, and we're not going to necessarily hit all the checkpoints in all our episodes. <laughs> we, we haven't planned out exactly all the episodes we hope to cover in this podcast, but we're going to do as many as we can and try and make them come alive and, and be more real to you as an educator. So uh, keep an eye for, for those in upcoming episodes. All right, so as is our way on Divergent by Design, we are going to end each episode with a challenge for you. And this week, we've got some additional reading and some different links and things you can look at. So, Lynn, why don't you start us off? All right. So our first um, resource that we've collected for you is really about UDL and ESSA. So this comes from the CAST website, and it talks specifically about the connections um, and the references within that Every Student Succeeds Act where it calls out UDL in specific. Uh, so we definitely encourage you to explore that. In addition, as you look at that page, it also talks about um, the National EdTech Plan, which we mentioned earlier, as well as a couple other places 
that UDL is referenced in specific in policy at that national level. All right, sounds good. Second thing I have for you today is an article from understood.org, which is just like a really nice one pager on what is universal design for learning. So if you got a little overwhelmed in this episode and you're like, wait a minute, can I? Yes, you can listen to it again. You can listen to it as many times as you want. (laughs) On repeat. Or you can also click through to this link and get this one pager on here. It's also great for sharing with other teachers or people who may not be as familiar with Universal Design for Learning. It goes over just some of the main points and why uh, Universal Design for Learning is such a great thing. All right. And then our last one, third one's the charm. Um, We have for you a resource called What is UDL? It's an infographic designed by Katie Novak. And if you are not familiar with her, um, I would totally fangirl over her and all of her work when it comes to UDL. This particular resource, though, is, um, as mentioned, an infographic that we found for you. She gives you a little bit of context, very similar to the conversation Jonathan and I just uh, started for you. But the infographic itself delves into understanding a little bit um, more about the UDL guidelines themselves, um, really introducing that idea of learner variability, which we will surface later and talk about a little bit more, um, but really is a great one-stop shop to kind of get, a, a once again, a review, a deeper context of what UDL is and is not. Yeah, and Katie has written a lot of really important books on UDL. So if you like what you see when you view this infographic and you want to dig a little bit deeper into the kinds of things that uh, she's talking about there, then I think we would both recommend uh, taking a look at some of the books that she's written on those. Exactly. I have a sneaking suspicion this will not be the first time nor the last time that you hear Katie's name. That's probably quite true. So we hope that these challenges and the episode itself have provided some grounding and are going to help you keep growing. Our music for the podcast is What's the Angle by Shane Ivers of SilvermanSound.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. 